Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocket. On Friday night, there was an event at Clatsop Community College featuring Dr. John Telberth, director of the Center for Sustainable Economy World Resources Institute. His appearance was sponsored by the college and the Columbia River Estuary Action Team. Dr. Talberth talked about industrial forest management and its relationship with climate emergency and the extinction crisis. Uh, we're in the sixth uh, mass extinction. Uh, every day you read the papers, it's the coral reefs, it's the tree snails in Hawaii. It's just one after another after another species is blinking out as, as we you know, just go about our business and engage in the economy as we're uh, engaging in it. And uh, this to me is a tragedy. You know, the Anthropocene is in full swing, the extinction crisis is in full string, swing, and um, one of the key drivers, the key drivers of this extinction crisis is this, uh, so there's, there's, there's three big ones. There's climate change is a really big one, obviously. There's habitat destruction, and then there's pollution. And at the center of all of these trends are industrial forest practices, wherever they take place in the world, are big drivers of those three big drivers of extinction. And at the heart of the, that driver that's coming from industrial forest practices is the conversion of these beautiful native forests, wherever they're found on the planet, with all their grace and beauty and intricacy and complexity, um, their, you know, their coolness, peacefulness, diversity, all the functions that they provide, like clean water and uh, pollinator regulation and uh, providing us with uh, you know, deep, rich soils for agriculture. The colonization of these forests, and I'll get into this word colonization in a bit, by industrial tree plantations uh, that are grown in these straight lines of homogenous um, monocultures, you know, grown like you know, just so much corn or something, like the corn crop or something. You know, the colonizations by these neat tree plantations that are sustained by clear cutting and chemicals and fertilizers in order to feed the global trade, the global fiber trade. And you, you, know, you all who live in Astoria know this uh, a lot. You've got big docks here, big export docks here. This is what most of the trade is right now, is pumping this global trade in. There, it's not even wood anymore. Think of the wood products you actually buy in the store or go into houses. A lot of them are just you know, these particle boards, these strange kind of permutations of what are real wood products. It's just a big fiber farm that we're turning our real forest into. So, you know, I'm using this word colonization deliberately because I think it's an apt description of what has transpired in many diff different dimensions. So there's the colonization of native forests by tree plantations from an ecological standpoint. Uh, but culturally, the whole process began, of course, uh, with the colonization of indigenous lands by settlers and eventually private logging companies, right? Uh, most recently, it's taken the form of the colonization of the wood product sector itself by global investment entities like Campbell Global and you know Warehouser and um, you know the Miami Corporation, these names that you know these are the people that own most of the industrial forest lands in or Oregon right now are these global investment entities and they've kind of colonized a sector that used to be uh, more local, more vertically integrated, more responsive to um, you know embedded in communities, those type of, of timber outfits. So that so that's a colonization in another sense. Uh, my good friend uh, Chuck Willer of the Coast Range Association, you probably heard him speak, uh, has, he coined the term Wall Street loggers to describe these kind of entities. And these investor-driven entities are, by their very nature, entirely incompatible with the concept of sustainability because their time horizons are so short 
and because they're untethered from any sense of obligations to the communities in which they operate. Um, yet their reach is spreading. Uh, so that's, so that's you know, when I talk about colonization, that's kind of what I mean. Another dimension to colonization uh, here is in the sense of resource colonies, right? Throughout history in many parts of the world uh, where these investor-driven extractive industries have taken hold, they bring with them a predictable litany of social, environmental, economic ills. And so these include uh, rural poverty, community instability, <coughs> mental health epidemics, fiscally stressed local governments, captured political processes, and degraded lands and waters. Does this sound familiar at all? So here we are, uh, Extractive Industry Central. They've also been great about securing generous tax breaks and subsidies and insulating themselves from legal liabilities uh, and bending public policies in their directions. So the rural communities where they operate in the Pacific Northwest are poster children for the marks of extractive industry colonization in all these forms. So that's kind of the, the social, political, political economy context. Now in Oregon, uh, here are their representatives. This is who we're up against. They're a group of over two dozen powerful CEOs whose lobbying arm, the Oregon Forest Industries Council, has been able to dominate the state's forest policy for decades and amass over $300 million a year in tax breaks and subsidies that come out of the pockets of schools, infrastructure, and social services, of counties who would otherwise be using that money for, for those uh, public services. Now, one of their key tactic, tactics is to thwart modernization of our forest laws or to have their climate impact scrutinized by denying the science. Here's what they had to say about a study that came out last April from Oregon State University. It's considered the gold standard in life cycle accounting for timber industry impacts. It, it documented the fact that the timber industry was the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state, something that our institute found the year before. This is what they have to say about that. Quote, the researchers manipulate these data in a manner clearly designed to produce a contrived outcome. Because the assumptions are entirely untethered from reality, the paper is unusable in carbon policy conversations in Oregon. So here's the Oregon Forest Industries Council telling legislators to throw the OSU study in the trash. This is the people we're up against. This speaks volumes. Now, until recently, the focus of battles over industrial forest practices has mainly been about biodiversity loss. Uh, and the sixth mass extinction is certainly playing out here in the form of dwindling numbers of species that depend on complexity. You know, big trees, complex structures in the forest, uh, diverse, wide riparian zones, uh, deciduous, patches of deciduous forest that grow old. All the species that depend on that, we're talking about 1,100 species that use old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest in some part of their life cycle, all are facing serious trends, declining trends, extinction trends because of the conversion of native forests into the industrial tree plantations that uh, cover the land from just a few miles uh, south of here for hundreds and hundreds of miles south and to the west to the Cascade foothills. So we've already lost 90% of our old growth forests, uh, putting all these species at risk. Uh, Northern spotted owl populations are dwindling by 4% per year. So the extinction crisis is here, and these industrial forest practices are, are key to that. So the science is very clear on this, and part of what we do in, uh, at CSC is kind of synthesize the science and turn it into policy prescriptions. And we already know about the extinction crisis, but what has uh, come to light 
ever more clearly in the past few years, is not only is the timber industry's practices driving extinction, but in fact, it is driving climate change in a very big way, and it's unraveling our ability to adapt to climate change in a very big way. And so these are the findings that have come to, to light uh, recently that shed a new light on why and give new impetus for us to actually get in there and start changing forest practices and modernizing, modernizing Oregon's forest practices laws. It's not just extinction, now it's about climate change. So this is like an unacceptable situation in so many dimensions. Water, fish, wildlife, plants, fire risk, tourism, recreation, to name a few, but also obviously for climate change and climate resiliency. Compared to the carbon-rich blanket of forests uh, we inherited from nature, let's just call that nature's baseline, these cutover lands are placing inexorable upward pressure on atmospheric CO2 concentrations at the very point in history where the scientific community is you know, saying in louder and louder and more unambiguous terms that we need to flip the model of forest management across the world to start capturing and storing carbon in the service of a global drawdown of atmospheric CO2 concentrations back to the 350 parts per million scientific safe zone. So to understand the mechanics of how industrial forest practices are creating these like major climate impacts, um, it's important to compare and contrast the carbon cycle we inherited from nature to, uh, let's call it nature's baseline, uh, with how that cycle and let's just say nature's baseline is on the left of this figure, and how that cycle has been disrupted by industrial forest practices. So for this, I'm using this wonderful illustration that comes to us for the courtesy of Natural Resources Canada. So take a look on the left side. So here's the nature's baseline, we call it. Natural forests take in lots of carbon from the atmosphere, big, thick green line. They emit some from decomposition, a lesser amount from fires, but the key point is that they take in far more carbon than they release, and because they do this, they contribute to a building up of soil carbon over time. So that's, uh, so that's kind of the basic, uh, and, and then there's some emitted by fire, lesser extent, and some, you know, some by de uh, decomposition, but the key point is way more carbon than is emitted, and therefore soil carbon builds up over time. So in contrast, under the industrial plantation model, most of the carbon stored in big old trees and deep rich, rich soils is depleted as the plantations are established. Less carbon is being taken out of the atmosphere because so much of the land is deforested at any one time. Um, and we have a suite of new emission sources associated with logging and milling, biomass burning, and decomposition from landfills. So the accumulation of carbon on land comes to a halt. We don't build up the soil carbon any longer. So this industrial forest uh, regime, this new regime that we've overlaid on top of nature, uh, causes that buildup of soil carbon that has been happening for uh, you know, centuries and centuries and thousands of years, comes to a screaming halt and instead we're starting to emit that carbon. So that's why it's really important in this debate is when people start asking about the climate impacts, the emissions impact of, of forestry, always think in terms of, well, what was the natural carbon cycle and how does that compare to what we have today? So that's the basic story, um, which is that you know, as natural forests are clear, replaced with industrial tree plantations, we replace this efficient carbon capture and storage system for one that is a system based on catch and release. Um, catch and release is, 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 is what we get from industrial forestry. 
catch and store is what we get from good forest practices. So that's the basic story. Uh, and this is what the, indeed what the uh, um, scientific data on forest carbon stocks and flows in Oregon shows. Less carbon storage, big time emissions, and diminished sequestration as natural forests are colonized by industrial tree plantations. But so that's story number one. There's a, another story to tell, a very alarming story of how these practices are unraveling our ability to adapt to climate change. Um, for example, by increasing fire risk, by reducing the amount of water that's coming out of our watersheds for drinking water supplies and irrigations, by uh, causing the water temperatures to increase and thereby increasing the risk of toxic algae blooms and other uh, pathogens, uh, by ex like making these watersheds more vul vulnerable to flooding and landslides and and, and, and insects and disease. So it's like these practices are actually unraveling our ability to adapt to climate change in addition to driving climate change. I'm gonna go through some of the findings that have been in the reports that we've issued, the reports by the Oregon Global Warming Commission and the reports, uh, the studies that have come about, out by uh, OSU. Now one of the crystal clear findings from this research is that we're in a serious forest carbon storage deficit, meaning that most of the carbon that nature intended to leave here on the ground is now circulating in the atmosphere. So if allowed to mature and grow into old growth condition, uh, late successional old growth condition, which doesn't mean no logging, we'll get into that in a bit, uh, Pacific Northwest forests can capture and store more carbon per acre uh, than any other terrestrial ecosystem on Earth. That's like something that people don't realize. Even more than tropical forests, even more, you know, there are a few pockets of other forests that have exceeded carbon density of Northwest forests, but those aren't major biomes. Those are like, you know, outliers. So in terms of like on the planet, where the most carbon is stored on a per acre basis, it's right here in the Pacific Northwest in the old growth forest. So that's a major finding. Now, unfortunately, uh, the problem is that this amazing carbon storage capacity is being squandered. Logging activities have depleted carbon stocks across all ownerships with the largest carbon storage deficit on industrial forest lands. So there's a big carbon storage deficit. Most of that carbon is now in the atmosphere. So in 1990s, scientists Mark Harmon, Bill Farrell, and Jerry Franklin found the following. Mass balance calculations indicate that the conversion of over 5 million acres of old growth forest to younger plantations in Western Oregon and Washington in the last 100 years has added 1.5 billion tons of carbon to the atmosphere. So that's equivalent to 90 years of Oregon's currently reported statewide greenhouse gas emissions. And the conversion has continued since then, albeit at a slower pace, driving not only climate change, but extinction. So the data also demonstrate that we're in a serious carbon sequestration deficit, right? So in particular, the transition from a lush, contiguous carpet of forest to a typical industrial forest landscape like this, where tree cover is about half gone at any one uh, uh, point in time, which is basically the coast range, right? I mean, any of you have gone up in any hill, you can see what's happening. Uh, it obviously, quite obviously, has reduced carbon sequestration capacity. No trees where they were before means no nature sequestration function has been limited, and the language of climate science has been considered an indirect form of emissions because the effect on CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere is exactly the same as if you're like pumping emissions to the atmosphere from uh, burning fossil fuels, right? Uh, if, we're, if we're reducing the, um, the sequestration, the, the, if we're reducing the carbon being taken out of the atmosphere by terrestrial ecosystems, the oceans, et cetera, 
uh, we're reducing that. It's the same effect as pumping more carbon into the atmosphere. Concentrations go up. That's the, that's the, that's the bottom line. So in fact, data collected from these big holes in the canopy uh, show that they're not only carbon sequestration dead zones. We're not only cutting off that sequestration, the taking of the carbon out of the atmosphere, but we're actually putting carbon into the atmosphere because for about 13 years after land is clear cut, uh, these lands are actually emission sources, not sinks, because the decay of logging debris, the disturbance to the soils, the burning of slash piles, et cetera, the carbon emitted from those activities and those conditions outweighs any new carbon being sequestered by, by the seedlings and plantations, you know, the, the young uh, 0, 13 age class trees. So that, you know, every clear cut is like, not only does it kill off sequestration, the, the wood goes and get processed and, and emissions, going to the atmosphere, but the decay, that land is no longer sequestering carbon. It's actually giving off carbon. So we're in this net sequestration deficit. In 2015 and again in 2017, CSC published the very first estimates of carbon emissions attributable to logging in Oregon. In our 2017 analysis, we estimated those emissions to amount to over 33 million metric tons CO2 per year over the 2000 to 2015 timeframe. So last April, we were very pleased to uh, have those figures corroborated by Oregon State <coughs> University researchers who found the very same, the exact same level of emissions over the same time period, albeit with a different methodology. So you've got two studies now, uh, scientific studies, pointing to this level of emissions. Uh, clearly that emissions from logging activities are the number one sorts of emissions in the state. Uh, you know, these emissions are not hard to understand when you think it through. So carbon is removed from a forest, uh, converted into either short-term products like paper packaging or longer-lasting products like lumber. And so the standard accounting frame, the standard number of years you say, okay, what's the emission is about 100 years. That's, you know, I won't get into the reasons for that. But after 100 years, even the carbon, most of the carbon stored in lumber and wood products is gone. Uh, and almost all of the carbon stored in paper and packaging is gone within seven years, right? So, um, so, so when you take trees off the stump, turn into products, some carbon is stored in those products, yes, but it's, it's, it's being emitted by wood products in natural decay function. This is just, uh, just um, half-life, you know, carbon half-life analysis. So, that carbon, so that's number one source of emissions. Uh, on top of this are the emissions associated with foregone sequestration. We just talked about that. There's no forest there. It's not sequestering any carbon. Uh, so, there's, so there's that emission as well. Uh, the decay and burning of logging slash, pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers, all which embody carbon, soil disturbance. Then there's the manufacturing process itself. And finally, the transport of finished products. So this is a very carbon intensive activity. And you never hear about that, right? No one's ever talking about wood products being a carbon intensive good, but in fact, they're one of the most carbon intensive goods out there. But then there's the side of the equation of how they're actually undermining climate resiliency. So one way they're doing this is by increasing fire risk. One of the most alarming, you know, everybody's concerned about fire and wildfires and the knee jerk response is to go up and log the national forest, right? I don't know where that came from, but it's just, you know, it's predictable where that came from. But the problem is, Study after study after study says the biggest fire risks are these monoculture tree plantations. Plantations burn hotter, faster, and greater severity than natural forests. You talk to the firefighters when they're out fighting these fires in our national forests that have a matrix of 
old growth forests and plantations, they say when they hit the plantations is when they run because those fires move really fast and they get out of control, while a natural forest has tons of water stored in the down logs and the big trees. The fires tend to uh, fall down onto the ground. Uh, they're not, you know, they're easier to fight that way. So increasing fire risk and this whole talk about needing to get up and thin the forest to reduce fire risk. Um, yes, go thin the industrial tree plantations. That's where we should be focusing the effort. Instead, the effort is to go up in places like the Mount Hood National Forest in forests that are naturally dense and do this to them. This is a thinning operation we came across last summer in the Na Mount Hood National Forest. They just took out what they wanted, the good juicy trees, and look what they left behind. This is like at the height of last summer's drought. This is a tinderbox waiting to explode. And every thinning unit I've seen on national forests where they've talked about, well, we need to get in there thin to reduce fire risk, it ends up looking like this. So they're actually increasing, not decreasing fire risk. And the mechanisms for doing that are the slash on the ground, the st stand homogeneity, right? A fire has an easy time getting through a, a stand that just all looks the same, same size trees. Uh, the loss of stored moisture, the loss of large fire-resistant trees, higher wind velocities, hotter microclimate conditions. Those are why the plantations are uh, burned so much hotter and faster. So that's fire risk. And then there's the water problem. Long-term studies have looked at heavily logged watersheds that have been converted to tree plantations and found that water supplies have been diminished on average by 50% going from a nature's baseline condition, natural forest, to industrial tree plantations and reducing water supplies by 50%. The water is warmer and it's more susceptible to toxic algae blooms. Salem's water crisis last year was partially attributable to the industrial forest practices. Even the Army Corps of Engineers, which is hardly a bastion of liberal thought, came out and said that extreme <coughs> logging practices were one of the causes of the sediments that, uh, and, the, and the water temperatures that were elevated in Detroit Reservoir that helped cause those toxic algae blooms. So this is a serious problem on our water supplies are at risk from these practices. And it's only gonna get worse during climate change. And of course, there's uh, landslides. It's another, another thing you and the Coast Ranger are familiar with. Uh, heavily logged units can increase uh, landslide risk by 200 to 400%. And of course, there's flooding. Uh, flooding, long-term studies have shown significant increases, 50 to 100%, 50 in small basins, 100% in large basins in the uh, peak flows associated with major flooding events and it's all dependent on what the condition of the land is. If it's heavily cut over in industrial tree plantations, we get this huge peak flows and bigger floods. So, you know, these, these impacts uh, um, on climate resiliency, let me just back up, they're not just uh, environmental impacts. These are impacts that are being disproportionately uh, felt by those least well-off and communities of color making industrial forest practices not only a public health issue, but one of environmental justice. And here's what Phil Mote, who's co-author of Oregon's Periodic Climate Change Assessment, had to say in a recent Oregon Live post. He says, the negative impacts of climate change will not affect everyone equally. Those on the margins, low-income communities, indigenous people, and those who depend heavily on natural resources will be hit hardest by the coming changes. Now this is, and will continue to be the case in rural Oregon, unless drastic changes are made to how industrial forests are managed. So what are the solutions? So let's think of two overall strategies. Number one is demand reduction, using less carbon intensive wood and using substitutes like bamboo or solar and wind energy for biomass burning. So 
reducing demand, and that's true for every carbon-intensive good in the economy, right? We need to just stop consuming so much of it. Uh, so I might be going on a limb here. We haven't done the analysis, but just from preliminary uh, results I've seen is we can globally cut our wood products consumption roughly in half globally because of all the waste in the system uh, without any corresponding losses in people's well-being. Like we don't need all that excess wood products. I mean, think all of all the packaging and the paper and just everything, you know, construction sites that are, you know, they just buy a lot of wood and waste a lot of it. It's the number one component of landfills globally in the U.S. and in Oregon is wood and paper products. So certainly we can do with less of it. Second big bucket, climate smart forest practices. Now this, uh, so these, pra these are very specific practices that operate on this sweet spot um, that if they're implemented, have these you know, quadruple benefits of reducing emissions, of increasing storage, of improving climate resiliency, and improving carbon sequestration. All four goals can be met at once through these practices. Aforestation, reforestation, thinning industrial tree plantations to get them on a trajectory to grow into mature and old growth forests, long rotations, forest carbon reserves, and alternatives to clear cutting. We, you know, in the Pacific Northwest is graced with scientists with, you know, who, who have developed the detailed prescriptions for how to actually implement these practices with the know-how of small-scale foresters who know how to go out and do individual tree selection, group selection, variable density thinning, all those alternatives to clear cutting. Uh, we're graced with those in the Pacific Northwest, and we should be rewarding these folks and scaling up their solutions rather than continuing to reward uh, the timber industry for business as usual practices. Um, so the good news for workers is that these practices are far more labor intensive than the highly mechanized, unsustainable logging techniques used by the Wall Street firms. So the importance of these climate smart force practices, the natural solutions, uh, uh, cannot be uh, overstated. In a recent scientific article ranked the importance of different natural solutions for solving the world's climate crisis. Guess what came out at the top by like a, a large margin? It's afforestation, reforestation, managing natural forests, improving the management of natural forests is by one, by, by far the number one natural climate solution that the scientists are pointing to. So we really need to get going on scaling these up in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. So right now the timber industry is getting uh, roughly $300 million a year uh, in tax breaks and subsidies for business as usual practices. That's outrageous, right? Uh, no matter what the condition of their land. And we think it's a good idea now to take a hard look at those and say, you know, if you want a subsidy, if you want a tax break, your land has to be in good condition. If you've got real forests on your land, uh, and you're managing them with climate smart practices, then you get the tax break because they're actually having a public benefit. If you're not, we're going to rescind those tax breaks and subsidies. Now, um, we predict, uh, we're doing some preliminary analysis, but this can generate, if we pass this bill, it could generate uh, two to three hundred million dollars a year that will go to counties for whatever they want to use that for because it's through property taxes, right? So they could use it for schools, they could use it for infrastructure, social services. That's Dr. John Telberth, director of the Center for Sustainable Economy, World Resources Institute, who spoke Friday evening at Clatsop Community College. This is The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca, and we'll be back next month at this same time. Thanks for listening.